local newsrooms. What a touch as we open on the events that happened in Marion, Kansas last month. The offices of the Marion County Reporter, local weekly newspaper, was raided by Marion's five-man police force in response to complaints raised by a local business owner. They seized computers, cell phones, reporting materials, homes of the publishers of the paper were also searched. In fact, the stress of the event led one of the reporter's 98-year-old co-publishers apparently to die the following day. Now, today's discussion had been planned and invites sent prior to the events in Kansas, but the raid on the Marion County Reporter offers at least one example about the gravity of local newsrooms, how much they impact lives, how much they impact our information, and highlight questions facing us about what the current status is. Now, even the days of behemoth mega news corporations of social media, local newsrooms are still viewed as a threat by those worried about maybe some portion of accountability. Joining us today to share their experience running local newsrooms and what we should be doing about their place in democracy are Sarah Alvarez, editor-in-chief of the Detroit-based Outlier Media, and Chris Fitzsimon, publisher of State's Newsroom, a consortium of local newsrooms. Sarah and Chris, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Democracy Nerd. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Sarah, let's begin with you, and let's just do some more introductions. Tell us about Outlier Media and how you got into this mess. Uh, right. Um, so Outlier Media is a local newsroom. We are based uh, here in the beautiful city of Detroit. Um, our goal is to provide is to fill information gaps and close accountability gaps uh, in the city of Detroit. And how I got into this mess, um, I started out as a lawyer. I started out as a civil rights lawyer, actually. Um, and although that's a very laudable profession, I didn't feel like my work was really reaching the people who I wanted it to reach. Um, I was lucky to find my way to public radio. But when I worked in public radio, I was also a little disappointed that public radio, in my experience, was not trying to reach a very broad swath of the public. It was focused, um, in my opinion, too much on members who tend to be wealthier and better educated than the majority of our public. Um, and when you talk about threats to democracy, one of the threats to democracy is kind of forgetting that it is for everyone and that in order to be strong, we have to have as many people as possible participating civically in our, in our communities. So I really wanted to start a newsroom that would serve that broad swath of the public and that would also take the concerns of the community incredibly seriously and use that as data to determine what stories needed to be covered and what information gaps needed to be filled. Did you start out or did the organization start out as a text messaging service? It did. It's that is still the core of our work. Um, I started it as a responsive SMS-based information system. Um, the SMS system for us does two things. It is a value for the community in and of itself. It operates at any time. 
It allows people to look up data that you some would otherwise have to look up on a web interface or that you otherwise couldn't have personalized, like whether your house has been inspected, for example, or is at risk of tax foreclosure. Um, but it also connects people to reporters. Everybody can connect to a reporter through that text messaging system and someone will follow up with them. And so it is the driver of our accountability coverage in addition to the data work that we do. So, you know, that was the other big part of what we started out doing. It was the text message system and then accountability stories on the very acute or harmful things that we were seeing come out of that text message system. I want to get a chance also to talk to Mr. Fitzsimon before I dig into much into it, but I think you're onto something. It's fascinating, right? It, it, People used to knock on doors more often than they do now. Some people still knock on doors, but heck, milk used to be delivered door to door. And your front door was sort of the place where people would come to you, right? And that's where the newspaper was dropped off. And then we think about sort of our computer terminal. Well, of course, now for so many of us, our front door is in fact our phones. And if it's trusted, and if you're not annoyed because it's not spam, it's something you've opted into, then what more personal way to have a better front door is there then the text message, I know I see my text messages vastly better than I see my emails now. It's also, you know, because in places like Detroit, and I think in many communities around the country, people feel abandoned by news and they're not imagining it. News for too long was not meeting their needs. It was not paying attention to what they said were problems. Um, and so we have a lot of making up to do if we're going to try to build an audience of people who had disengaged from the news. And the way that you have to do that is not to try to rely on a small audience, but really go for the biggest audience that you can. And the way that you're going to do that is finding a place where everybody already is and leaning into that channel and building a responsive model on top of it. I want to dig more into that, but let me get to Chris. Chris, tell us the story, not only your story, but the story of State's Newsroom. Well, and thanks for, again, thanks for having me and happy to be on. Um, State's Newsroom started, uh, gosh, uh, now six years ago. I was I, I was a reporter, uh, and then I worked uh, in the political system uh, briefly and then worked in the think tank world, but I was a, a journalist at heart and realized in my view, still, state government is probably the level of government that has the most impact on our daily lives when you consider how little it's covered. Uh, and I noticed that it was that coverage was shrinking. A lot of major legacy papers, due to the model of, of journalism struggling, um, really don't have don't dedicate the resources as as much as they used to to covering the state capital. Not just what happens in the and what bill passes what day, but what those policies mean, what agencies do, how education policy and in climate change and uh, democracy um, issues are, cover, are, are debated, what laws are passed, and how it affects people's lives. So that's really where State's Newsroom was born. I founded a, a news and commentary outlet in North Carolina in 2004, at the time called NC Policy Watch. Uh, we, had, we did commentary and we hired reporters and we started having a big impact on the news sort of ecosystem in North Carolina, covering things from a different point of view or covering things that wasn't weren't covered by the mainstream legacy media. And at the same time, the legacy media started shrinking dramatically at that point. Uh, and so that's really the genesis of State's Newsroom. And it has grown now to where we have four to five reporters in 35 state capitals. We have a Washington bureau. We have national democracy, reproductive rights, economy reporters. Um, and are and they're all the journalists that we hire are all 
veterans. Uh, the, the editors of our outlets are all longtime reporters in their state capitals who didn't have the opportunity uh, to cover things the way they wanted to or were, uh, or were frustrated or watched their, their press corps shrink. Um, and so now we have, uh, we have those teams around the country. Uh, we have, a, obviously, each team has a website and newsletter, each outlet. Uh, they have broad latitude about what they cover as long as it affects people's lives and is somehow tangentially uh, related to state government and policy and politics. But a giant part of our model, since we're philanthropically supported by readers and foundations, is that all of our content is free. And so we'll be republished. We're republished thousands and thousands of times every month. So a lot of rural newspapers, if you if you live in rural Iowa, there are a lot of papers, or Ohio or Missouri or Kansas, uh, papers that didn't cover state government anymore because they couldn't afford AP and they certainly couldn't send someone to the state capitol. Now they have state government coverage uh, in thousands of places around the country that they used to not have. So we're certainly not the answer to what's the problem in journalism, but I think we do fulfill a very important role in at least explaining what's happening in the capitals, not just in the legislature, in the governor's office, uh, in state agencies and boards of education, and boards of transportation and climate change and indigenous populations. Uh, in our states that have large indigenous populations like Arizona, New Mexico, and others. Um, so we're really working hard to, to fill one sort of one niche, one important role of what is missing. And, and as we all know, that democracy is not eroding starting in Washington. A lot the, the reason who decides how you vote, when you vote, in, uh, increasingly is decided by state legislatures. Uh, the effort to overthrow the last election was focused on state legislatures and state governments and governors and secretaries of states and boards of elections. So all those vital issues to our democracy, especially, uh, are being debated and decided in state legislatures around the country, where we're sorry to see that the coverage has actually decreased and we're trying to trying to stem that tide some. Each of you made uh, important cases, m m important lines. I wanted to say claims, but that sounded like it would diminish them. Uh, the uh, Sarah, you made the point that uh, public media, that public radio relies on its uh, listeners and on its donors and its donors do not map uh, racially or economically uh, to the overall population. Uh, I, I do note that cell phone ownership is in fact more egalitarian than uh, racially and economically than uh, active participation as a donor to to radio, although you, you can receive radio for free. I've made a big fan of radio. Uh, you also made a really important case, Chris, and that was that state government is maybe the biggest media gap. It is the place where if you compare the leverage that it has on people's lives relative to how much coverage it receives, you might say more about that, but it resonates very quickly, right? If you turn on cable news, it is talking almost entirely about the federal government, right? Unless right. something particularly salacious happens in a local area, right? And in big cities, they cover their mayors and their police forces. In, in local places, in smaller local places, may not have a local newspaper, but they also have smaller budgets and they aren't running as big social service programs, et cetera. But state governments make big decisions, run big, big budgets. And speaking to my state, the basement of the Capitol building was for the press. Then there came a day when the basement of the Capitol building was nearly entirely empty and not even the lights were turned on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the other the other point about that is that we know how important the stakes are from all those things that we've been talking about, but also 
the things that happen in one state capital happen in every state capital. The attacks on trans people are happening in every state capital, or most of them. The attacks on democracy are not uh, popping up just out of the blue. They're coordinated many times. The, the attacks on a woman's right to have uh, reproductive freedom over her own bodies, all those issues are happening in, very, in, uh, in a lot of capitals at the same time, and that's not an accident. And we also try to explain to people how those issues are linked who's behind them, who's pushing them. We have a national site called newsfromthestates.com where you can see what's happening in all the states. It's a live feed that's curated at the top, but you can search by state, search by issue. Uh, there's all sorts of, um, I think, of connections and issues that, that, that people don't realize when they see something happening in their own state that it oftentimes doesn't, doesn't come organically from somebody in their state. It's, a, it's an organized effort around the country. I want to ask both of you, and Sarah, I'll start with you. You talked about the funding of other media organizations. We didn't talk about you know, how, how legacy commercial media is funded. We know that's advertising. Uh, we know that digital media, now there's more uh, for-profit digital media that is pay-for-play, that is, you know, I pay a little membership rate and then I get to receive the information. Otherwise, it's either by advertising or by information harvesting, which then informs advertising. Uh, as far as I know, both of you are 501c3 charities, which means you got to raise money. You got to sing for your supper in a different way. Uh, so how does that work for you? Is it a sustainable model? How do you find the money? I actually do want to get a little nerdy and dig in a little bit to funding models. As people who've had to build organizations before, it's a real piece of it. How do you do it? It's hard. Um, I think that, you know, there was just a big announcement by, um, a group of philanthropies led by the MacArthur Foundation and the Knight Foundation. It's called Press Forward. This is an effort for, to raise, you know, $500 million for news. Um, so I do think that that's helpful if funders and people who have a lot of philanthropic resources can begin to think of news as something that they should fund, especially, um, local news, if they care about their other programs in a city, who's going to make sure that those programs are performing if not, if there's no news? Um, so it is kind of a solid investment just to make sure that, uh, you know, everybody is doing what they say they're going to do. I do think it is sustainable. I think that we have to be honest that the value of news is at the community level. And sometimes that is gonna be hard to pay for. And in places where there's not a lot of wealth, it's going to be harder to pay for it. And we, I think that for too long, there was this real focus on like, well, maybe you'll need a little bit of philanthropic funding at the beginning, but then you'll find a way to be sustainable. That is, a pipe dream. I think that the whole model of news is so different. We can do more with less. You know, we can have, I, so, you know, here in Detroit, I remember talking to it all. Uh, he's not, he's not very old, but uh, a veteran Detroit news reporter. And <laughs> we were talking about something and he was asking about running and he was saying, well, you know, I used to do this, but then the Detroit news closed their gym. And I was like, what? Like I came into journalism too late to have any kind of like expense accounts or a gym at the building. So, here's a, one of the perks of having the gig was that there was a gym on site. There wasn't a gym on site. He wanted to do something different. And you're like, wow, I was just hoping to get a cell phone. I paid for myself. Right. 
Exactly. I was just hoping to get a computer right, <laughs> to do my work. Um, so, you know, I came into, into news at a time when the resources were already very constrained. And I think that it's going to be true that resources continue to be constrained. And I think that's okay. Like we really do need to be smart with the resources that we have. Um, this is not necessarily a profit-making business and that's okay. Philanthropy is always going to be and need to be a part of what sustains us. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to be creative and try to get a lot of support from our community in terms of small dollar donations or um, sponsorships, that we don't have to be creative about trying to make sure that we have a mix of funding. Again, because if what we want is to make sure that we're a community resource that is around for the longer term, we have to have a serious conversation about how that happens. Funding from you know, the government is a is a possibility. And I think that that's a third rail issue for some people. But I know there's a lot of really smart folks thinking about how to do that in a way that doesn't compromise um, journalists integrity and uh, independence. But you know, we have to have news. And we have to think about how to fund it in a way that distributes the resource more equitably across the country and even to small communities or or communities without a lot of wealth. I didn't I didn't take the time to uh, go to, to to do the research prior. If you don't mind me asking, what is your funding breakdown? And and be as specific as you're as you're comfortable being. Like how much how much does it cost to run your operation? And like what are the biggest clumps? You said philanthropy. Does that mean foundations? Does that mean sort of individual yeah. believers in you and or your business model? Does that mean you do like like recipients of your thing, some percentage of them make a monthly donation or whatever, break it down a little bit for us. And, and then, all, then Chris will have time to do homework things. in his head. Yeah. Yeah. It's all of those things. Um, so, right. Like we do, we are supported by philanthropy, national philanthropy and local philanthropy. Um, you know, our budget last year was, um, or this year is about $1.6 million. Um, we also do have a membership program. Uh, you can enter that membership program for free. So that is something that's different from the models that uh, myself and our executive director, Candace Fortman, who also comes from public radio, right? Like that's different from the model that we came from. We want people to be part of what we call the outlier collective. And if, and if you don't have money to join it, you still have resources to give. Um, we also do sponsorships. Um, we have some sponsored content. We're experimenting with that. Um, we are definitely take major gifts and, you know, we are really trying to level up on that business side. It is true that like we have many more resources in our newsroom on the editorial side than on the business side. We've got, um, you know, 11 people on the editorial side and three on the business side. That's because our community is in like an information crisis and the lack of information and accountability causes real acute harm. But we do have to- And when you say on the business, business side, side, when you say 11 on the- Fundraising, yeah. um, management, um, operations, right. All of that, three people. And, you know, the Texas Tribune recently, they were kind of like a nonprofit darling, um, recently laid people off. And I think in part because they felt they hadn't uh, right-sized their business side, we're really trying to to avoid that. But, you know, we got our first big grant 
our first multi-year grant that really allowed us to do anything. Um, we didn't get that until 2021, and I started Outlier in 2016. So it's been like a long, hard well, road. So let me first of all just say congratulations, right? Thank like building you. a building one half million dollar, you know, annual budget local nonprofit is no small thing. Uh, it's a it's a hard gig, and and I appreciate it. That may be a little editorializing myself, but let me at least express a bit of gratitude. But but Chris, let me go to you. Still on the funding question, how do you approach it and get as specific as you can? It's not we're, the name of the show is we, not democracy generalist. Yeah, well, I mean, we're sort of a national version of what um, what you just heard. We it's, it's the same mix, I and mean, we were really fortunate uh, this past spring to get three million dollars from the Pew Charitable Trust to to take over their state line, uh, their long running state government. Um, project that has been does in-depth enterprise amazing stories uh, every day uh, it started in 1998 so that obviously was a large gift and helped us we get we have national foundations where I, I think we're about to announce another one in the relatively near future we get a ton of money from readers and small donations we're lucky because we sort of have the economies of scale if we have thousands of readers in a whole bunch of states if we if, if they are generous and we appreciate it that's a giant part of our funding now. We have local foundations in the states that help us expand the capacity in each capital um, in Virginia and Minnesota and uh, a whole bunch of other states around the country. Um, so it, it's a, it is a constant challenge, but I think I want to go back to something that, 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 that we've already discussed. That it's so important. Um, we, we've got a, there is no magic bullet for journalism. It has to be this mix of things. And we also have to think about it as a public good. I was talking to a, another person who's engaged in journalism in another state, and they were saying, you know, why is it that we all believe, and I do strongly in the arts, nobody would tell an opera company or an art museum, here's money for this year, uh, figure out the rest of it on your own. We think of art as a public good, and journalism is at least, and I love art, and I'm a big supporter of the arts, but journalism is certainly at least as much a public good as, as the arts are, and we have to realize you can't just say, here, here's some money, get started, and good luck that if we're going to preserve our democracy, and you know, that used to be sort of a, a cliche, but it's actually now an open question, I think, as we sit here uh, in 2023, journalism has a vital role to play. And we, I do think of it as a public good, like a hospital, like the arts, like a lot of other things that we sort of take for granted. I do think there are ways to, to, to increase our, um, uh, uh, and we've already, we've already talked about some of this, but increase our sustainability and be smart about business and, and encourage people and get foundations and find sponsorships and do all those things. But fundamentally, it's a public good. And we have to, as a society, rely on uh, all sources to continue to do that. What I'm really worried about, and thank goodness we have public media organizations in cities. I'm worried, you know, we do the best we can. We can't do it all, even covering state government. I'm really worried about small and medium-sized towns. Who's covering the city council? Who's covering the school board? Who's covering the mayor? Who's covering the police department? Who's doing all those things? It is a public good. We have to realize that we need diverse funding sources to, to make that happen. Yes. For, let me let me say, I appreciate you making the public good point that for so long, we think of the, maybe think of them as halcyon days, Edward R. Murrow, uh, of a time when uh, commercial media was nonetheless not expected to be a profit center. It wasn't viewed to be the primary right, entertainment right. Uh, entertainment product. In fact, it was even viewed as sort of a loss leader, as something that was sort of the 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 good piece that one did in order to justify one having the airwaves. And we have kind of sort of diminished that element. That's not a new story. I'm not new to that. But but recognizing that is a 
precursor to the next sort of category of questions, which is as we imagine the future of funding. Glad that you mentioned the press forward thing. So press forward uh, is MacArthur Foundation, Archwell Foundation, Carnegie, uh, Democracy Fund, Ford Foundation, uh, Glenn Nelson Center, a bunch of 22 foundations come together, uh, either pledge or announce $500 million. I haven't looked into if those 22 are divvying up the 500 million or they're divvying up some, they're going to go find more. Uh, I, I don't know to that degree, but nonetheless, you could tell they wanted to make a major announcement. I think, I think in order so that people like Sarah could continue to do their work and so that more Sarahs might say, you know what, maybe I'd do this because there'd be money to go do it, right? I think about an analogy. I wonder about universities. So the it, it, different funding models that exist in the world. And one model that occurs to me is university funding model where people pay tuition, right? They, they pay their sort of paid membership, but that doesn't cover like whether whether you're talking about Yale or the University of Tucson, right? Like it doesn't exist. Like that's not that is not uh, um, that's not the whole deal, right? Uh, we there are private donations from alumni. There are foundation gifts. There are even publications that will sell. They'll even have a student store that will sell stuff and they'll sell merchandise, right? So they've looked at sort of multiplicity of funding options and by the way, looking for federal money, either federal money through the subsidy of tuitions or direct federal money when it comes to state, uh, when it comes to uh, to state and public schools. I wonder if where the limits of that model, where what is attractive about that model, it even occurs to me if education is something that is supposed to continue through one's life, one of those educational elements is in fact journalists. We've free ridden upon newspapers to keep teaching us stuff after we graduate from high school or college. And if those are going away, where are we going to learn? Uh, I would love to hear more about where we're thinking about funding and about efforts for local funding. You said, Sarah, that there could even be government funding. That could be like public television, public radio. That could be uh, at the federal level. But I even wonder about state funding. I even wonder about a state government saying we are going and there have been efforts to do this in radio, for instance, to support community radio. And if there are efforts currently going on to get states to make their own micro BBCs, right, little public funded either institutions or funds that would support organizations like yours or others. There are there are those. Um New Jersey has been successful in passing a civic information bill, um, which was uh, kind of a pooled fund to support uh, small local news organizations. Um, there's a slightly different model that's working in California. Um, so I do think that those are, there are people trying to work on, on that. Um, and I think it's, I think it is important. I think something that you said about the university model is is also important. And one thing that we have to be, we have to really have our eyes wide open about is that regardless, we, we need to have more money for journalism. We need to come up with ways to make this public good more available in more places. But um, we also, need to understand that it is always going to be a resource that is scarce. And so what we have to do is something like universities do, which is try to take the skills that we have and redistribute them to lots of people. I don't think that the model that we have of having all of the power in small newsrooms 
and keeping all of the functions of journalism just amongst um, you know, a small group of people is the safest way to do this when democracy is so fragile in this country. So something like, for example, so a, a lot of local newsroom leaders talk about um, really needing to rebuild civic infrastructure as part of our work. And the Detroit Documenters program is an example of that. Um, it's based off of a national network of documenters programs that started in Chicago. The folks at City Bureau started it. And this is a program that trains and pays people to go cover local government meetings um, and to take notes at those meetings. And then those notes are edited by newsrooms and are entered into the public record. But they also serve as you know, a way that people can um, reporters can access and, you know, do more reporting, but it's there for everybody. And the other thing that about it is not just that the notes are there, but that a person is at the public meeting. And I think it's in some ways, you know, it, it was conceived of as a way to help close the gap when there were fewer reporters and it was like seen as almost like here's a replacement for a lot of reporters that have been lost at at local um capitals but i think it's even better to have a resident there than a reporter um i think that city officials feel differently accountable to residents i think that residents are you know often less jaded um and you know, are not just looking for something that's like, oh, well, that would be a good story. They're paying attention to everything. They're asking questions about anything that doesn't make sense um, to them and to, by extension, their neighbors. That's really important. And there is something that we have to really think about when we're talking about what's the future of local news and then maybe even state house news. Um, when we're thinking about like, how do we make this more participatory? How do we equip more people to participate in news gathering and, um, and working through information and deciding what's important? Chris, bouncing back a little bit, I should ask you the same question that Sarah answered. Ballpark, what's the ballpark budget of state newsrooms? What capacity does that garner in the places where you're able to serve? Well, in the capacity, we have about, I think in every capital, we have at least four people. Some we have five and some we have six, depending on the local funding and local support. Um, so, you know, that means each newsroom's budget is, you know, probably, gosh, you know, roughly $500,000, something yep. like that. Um, and um, what that, but then we centralize the function so they don't have to worry about, you know, we, the, the economies of scale means that we have a, we have a national editor that oversees a portfolio of states. We have uh, digital support and technology support, operations, HR, and all sorts of those things. So the journalists in the capitals focus on the journalism. Um, I actually think we need a journalist and a resident, ideally at every meeting, if I could have in a dream world. I think residents may ask the best questions and journalists can help whether journalists can look over uh, the notes that somebody's taking or put things in context because maybe they know about what a certain politician was or wasn't doing five years ago or who is who is you know who he or she is tied to and all sorts of those questions and sort of put things in context and perspectives the thing i love the best of jumping back to the documenters that sarah mentioned is that i think for a little while people thought we were going to get volunteers to do this but we need to pay people to be there and to do things which i think is a really important part of it again it goes to the public good and the um 
the idea that we we can't we can't we can't have a democracy survive unless people have the information they need to make decisions about their lives and make decisions about people who are representing them at all levels of government. So half a million dollars newsroom, and how many newsrooms are you operating now or serving now? We are in third. Well, we're in thirty-five now. We have a Washington bureau. So, and and also, and what year did you start? How long did this take? What what was the? Oh, what was well, the... We, we we started out as a project of another organization. We've been an independent nonprofit since October two thousand nineteen, which is really when our growth started happening. So, so it's incredible growth after, right? I mean, that means that means yeah. your budget is what a, a overall budget of newsrooms have independent budgets or are all rolled up into one. No, it's all. I mean, we we're the. It's one organization. So yeah. Um, so if yeah. I'm doing the arithmetic, you got a budget of somewhere between fifteen and twenty million dollars. Yeah, that's that's in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also congratulations to you, right? You're serving what I would agree is a critical public good. Uh, in terms of who is citing you, in terms of moving from money a little bit to influence, in terms of kind of who's reading what and what decisions is it informing. What's the difference now that people should understand other than, oh, yeah, there's less, there are fewer local newspapers and the local newspapers are fewer pages. I think people sort of understand that. What are people maybe not understanding? I think maybe a second level is there are fewer subjects covered. There's not always a journalist and a resident at every meeting. Uh, the uh, there, there are sections of our newspaper that no longer exist. Right. But right. there might be particular areas of news that aren't getting covered. Sarah, to you first. What are things that people should really understand about the most important, some of the most important gaps in local journalism now? I think what people should understand is that just because there's the internet, just because the internet exists does not mean that people have their information needs met. That, you know, having an internet is amazing, but it doesn't mean that you know where to look for information, that the information is actually accessible. Um, that uh, you know what to trust. So I think the thing that people need to understand is that there are really serious information gaps in every community that cause harm. Um, the question is, how do you find those? And it's my belief that uh, the primary function of local news should be to fill information and accountability gaps and not just uh, feed someone's curiosity. So I think that makes it incumbent upon local newsrooms to try to come up with good ways to identify the information gaps that exists and then structure their beats around those needs first. And then if we get to have, you know, then we can do other things, but that's the critical point. So for example, we do these information needs studies that are Part of it is a survey over text message, and part of it is looking at data from United Way two on one call centers, from um, you know nine one one response times, property data, all kinds of things to find out what people are complaining about and um, where service gaps exist. And so, what we cover is housing, utilities, transportation, city and county government, um, and then during the pandemic. We also saw that people started saying that they were really suffering from a lack of connection to their neighbors and to their community and really not knowing kind of where to turn for, for many things. So we also try to provide coverage that um, connects people to the community. Um, it's not really arts and culture, it's more culture and community. But yeah, that's that the community is our assignment editor uh, because 
yes, there are always going to be beats that can't be filled. Um, so you got to pay attention to what people need first and what causes the most harm. So I heard Sarah say that the information gives us more, the internet gives us more information than we have time for, but it doesn't give us all the information, doesn't curate the information, doesn't let us know what's the stuff that's different than just angry birds to guard, you know, garner our attention. Uh, for you, Chris, or from your vantage point, what do you see as some of the gaps that people need to aware be aware of, either as donors or as supporters of stuff, or as consumers, as readers or listeners of stuff? I think for a long time at the at the state, I guess you could make the argument at the national level too. But at the state level, I think we it's been a it's all been about the horse race and things at the legislature, and they're always there and they're always arguing and they're for this or that. Or the, the struggle always is to is to help people figure out two things. One is how to have impact on it themselves, how the system works and the process works, and how they can be involved. But also what those decisions actually mean to their lives. It is a big deal when a state is determining whether or not to expand Medicaid for so tens or hundreds of thousands of people can have health care or not. And what's behind that decision and what happens if they don't do that and trying to get people to really understand that. Um, climate change is another, uh, I think a lot more people are waking up to the what's happening with our climate based on the just the weather patterns and the disasters and the struggles that we're having around the country and around the world. But it's happening in you know every state in America. We, we try to cover that as much as we can, the transition to renewable energy um, and what's at stake there and why what why that's happening or why it's not happening, the speed at which it's happening. And I mentioned democracy, and we started the whole this whole hour talking about what's happening in Marion, Kansas. You know, the Kansas Reflector, which is our outlet there based in Topeka, was really was the first outlet to report in depth the raid and what happened. It was mentioned, it was uh, talked about in sort of the press circles, and our reporter, our editor, Sherman Smith, was the one, if you go back and read even the national wow. stories, they cite the Kansas Reflector to, to really explain, and then a lot of people jumped on the story, and they might have anyway, but I think it was really interesting that it was a local paper in Topeka that did the, the our folks, you know, um, who did a wonderful job sort of putting it in context and following it and explaining what was really happening. Um, and I think that it's the same thing now. And, you know, the other thing to make the point of something like the word redistricting makes people's eyes glaze over, but there's a big battle in Alabama now about whether uh, black voters are going to have a second congressional district. The, the courts have ordered the state to draw two black congressional districts. The state just came and redrew the districts and didn't do it. So now the courts are, are sort of baffled and trying to figure out what's going to happen. It's Those are the issues that seem boring and governmental, but it literally is about who represents you uh, in your in Congress and in your state legislatures and how you vote and all those things that I was mentioned before about democracy. So the struggle really is to to figure out what what's happening and what affects people's lives, help them understand it, help them understand how they can have a voice in it uh, and why it's important and, and why the state has so much power that we need to really realize and understand. It actually gets me to the uh, next topic I wanted to get to, which is how to measure impact. So the good news is if you were, if you were CBS news, you would some number of years ago, maybe now you would measure yourself by revenue. And then the way you garnered revenue was you'd measure yourself by uh, by ratings. Uh, you might measure yourself by awards and 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 sort you know some other things as well. Set aside CBS News and go to a social media platform, right? Roughly roughly similar thing. The ultimate measure will be revenue, and the uh, the other, but maybe the primary measure, not ultimate, but the primary measure might be eyeballs. If what you want to do is maximize revenue and eyeballs. 
you know, you can, you can make pornography, right? A lot of people will come and a lot, you know, a lot of people will watch it and a lot of people will pay for it. If you're trying to sell democracy or if you're trying to open people's eyes to democracy, how do you measure it? Is it as simple as, hey, our budget's growing, our, our, our workers are happy enough and and we're growing readers? Or how do you how do you evaluate your impact? I'll switch up the order and stick with you, Chris. Yeah, that's a, that's the question. I, we certainly don't do it by, I mean, we, we measure how many readers we have because we want to know and what's working and how to reach more people. And we always want to keep expanding on that. Uh, it's hard in journalism to measure. You can sometimes you can point to um, you can point to laws that have changed or ideas that have come up. Uh, I think we try to we measure it in another way about broadening the conversation, about how many more people are involved. Uh, do people have a, uh, an understanding of what's happening? Are we reporting stories that other people aren't reporting? Are we reporting stories in a way uh, that other people aren't reporting them? If we're reporting the same stories, we we also track how many people reprint our stories, how many people, how many local papers we're supporting, you know, not only do local small papers and I always used to use Iowa, uh, in Iowa carrying state government news for the first time in a long time, it actually then helps them fill up their, their newspaper. They can, if they only have a hand, two or three reporters, they don't have to worry about covering, figuring out what's happening at the state house in Iowa or what the governor's doing. They can then cover the city council knowing that they can use up, fill up their webpage or fill up their printed, printed copy with our materials. So we look at it, our coverage, we look at it in a way that we're supporting local journalism and, and local small town community weekly papers. Um, there's a million ways we look at it, but we obviously don't don't measure it in um, just in clicks, or we don't measure it in um, how many people give us money. Uh, you know, it's a it's a public good from our end too. We're trying to figure out how we can have the most impact and help our culture and our society thrive and have the information they need. Sarah, same question. How do you evaluate impact? Well. I do think you need eyeballs. Like I do think general audience is still something that um, news organizations should be going for. I think that if you have to be really creative, if you are a small newsroom in a big city, um, or if you are a small newsroom with just a lot of competition from the internet and from entertainment and from you know lots of people. There's lots of ways to spend your time. So I do think that we still want general audience. I think that you're going to have to collaborate in order to get that. Um, and the reason why we want general audience is not because there's a profit motive behind it, but because in order to have impact, we do need to have people need to have the same information and people need to be able to hold folks accountable. And I don't think that you know, the situation in Kansas is an example of that. I do not think that people in power are as um, worried about press and about bad press as they maybe used to be. Um, you know, shame was what was keeping the train on the tracks for a long time. And if that is not any longer a motivator, then we really have to think about um, what, what is going to motivate people. And I think that it really, you need to have a lot of people with the same information and kind of demanding accountability. Um, let, let's stick with that for a moment, right? I mean, and it's maybe too obvious an example, but bad press did not stop Donald Trump from being president and has not stopped him from being the front runner in, for the presidential nomination. It fueled his anger. Sometimes it fueled his 
opposition. All he had to say was that it was fake news and it was part of the, the press was the enemy of the people and move along. I think it's maybe different in Democratic primaries, Democratic Party primaries, but the uh, but that's certainly there is a very enormously famous example of the reduction in in shame as a lever. Is that large? Is that what does that say about our culture? Is it partly just because we're all in different filter bubbles and we're we're exposed to so many sources? There's no Walter Cronkite can tell us what's true, and therefore shame is just your opinion. Uh, what do you chalk it up to? Well, I mean, from my perspective, as someone who works in news. Um, and local news, but sees a lot of national news. I think what we see is that news has the ability to be incredibly divisive, or it has the ability to be generative and to help communities come together and achieve mutual goals. Um, having national reporting that is about eyeballs and about the horse race, as Chris was talking about earlier, gives us a problem at the local level that we almost need to clean up <laughs> because we live in the, you know, we all live in the United States of America, but these, but these communities are where division is really hitting the ground. And so it's on the backs of the local news providers to try to bring people together and get people on, on a similar page about what's factual and about what the stakes are and about how um, what people really need to meet their challenges and achieve their goals. And it's a huge, it's a very, very tall order. So I do think that we need national media to work with us a little bit and to be a little more careful about their coverage and not um, being so divisive. And I think, um, and I think that I think that that's like the main lesson of like, how do you be more careful as a news producer, trying to zero in on what it is that um, people want and need and giving them that rather than leaning into entertainment, and then watching what the spillover effects of that strategy are, which is what we have today. Chris, so much of the discussion, how I approach the discussion, but I, th I think even the zeitgeist is rooted in nostalgia. Wasn't it great when, when we had robust local newspapers, et cetera, and the worry of what has been lost. Is there anything that is, or maybe better yet, anything that can be better now? Meaning that by disrupting the state of local media, that in fact will improve democracy or could improve democracy or could improve our ability to share information and to make the make our union stronger? I think there is, although, you know, and, and it's just like when I said, I wish there was a uh, reporter and a citizen at every local meeting. I wish we could take the base of the, base of the funding and, the, and the, uh, the people power that used to be in the traditional media and improve it. And what we're, what we're trying to do is scramble and do both things at the same time. We do need resources. We talked a lot about that. We do need experienced reporters who understand the context and the history and what's actually happening. But we also need citizens uh, to be and, and residents to be involved and be at meetings and and be engaged and interact not with the with the media and also their local officials and their state officials. Um, the internet we've talked a lot about. Obviously, we're digital. We're in this digital world. It does present not only challenges, but all these opportunities. It makes things more accessible. I don't think we figured out all these answers, but I think, you know, resources and people 
uh, people are a resource too, but re financial resources and people to cover the news at whatever level, at whatever level of expertise is the, is the fundamental first step and getting people more engaged in the news that affects their lives, engaged in the democracy that affects their lives, that they're part of, and that it's all, you know, it's, um, I don't think we can be better. We can be better, but I don't think it, it, we, we should recognize what we've lost and build it back better, but we have to build it back because we have lost so much, I guess is what I would say. So I'm a little worried. We can't do it all with new technology and, and automatically think we can make everything better immediately because we do need we need investments and we need people on the ground in all these areas at state governments, at local governments, in communities. We need to work with the communities. We need to get their voices. Far more voices need to be heard in the media and in the political debates. So we do have a lot of opportunities, but we have a lot of challenges that are uh, that are facing us due to the collapse sort of in the traditional journalism model in so many places. So you mentioned something that I should flag, which is the diminishment in local traditional media has been not only a diminishment in uh, distribution or collection, but also a risk of uh, reduction of training. Right, reduction of of not only uh, formal training, but also sort of multiple shot play relationships, uh, really being able to build a career worth of sources, really being able to draw from essential lessons, both of becoming a better writer, becoming a better listener, becoming a better uh, questioner, being able to get better dot connector. And that idea of training and sort of institutional strength, whether it's by, and, and I'm going to ask you, Sarah, you know, sort of how do we get sort of the benefits of strength with also some of the benefits of, of more distributed power? It doesn't all have to be owned by one oligarch, uh, but I want to ask you the same, feel free to feel free to comment on any of that, but at least answer the question. What do you think? Cause I saw you nodding previously. What do you think uh, are ways that we are, or can be better that we could make not only return to a, to a past where at least there was journalism, but a future that's even better. Every way. I mean, I think it can be better in every way. I think that, you know, um, journalism is an essential function. And so I don't want to denigrate any of the work that has come before um, this time. But it is true that the voice of the official voice and like what was considered the official record was missing a lot because of the people who were in power in newsrooms and what they felt was important. Um, that yeah, we had like great newsrooms who were still not reporting on many things that were happening in a community and were affecting many, many people, right? Like huge swaths of stories were left out because of people, because people were not allowed to, um, to be in newsrooms and because stories were not seen as important. Um, so that can be better and I think is getting better. Um, I also really do think that when we have fewer resources, I hope that we are more creative and think about like, well, what are those essential functions that we must keep within the newsroom that we must train for? What are the things that like, really journalists kind of need to do and can add the most value. And then what are there other things that we can work with librarians on, that we can work with documenters on, that we can work with educators on, right? Like what are those other things that newsrooms did that maybe some other part of civic infrastructure should do? Um, so I think that there's a huge opportunity to really reimagine what local news looks like, not just replace what local news um, was. And I don't wanna be like, 
I'm not naive. We're in a crisis. But because of that, I think we have to be incredibly creative and really think about like, how are we going to build trust? How are we going to get more people in? How are we going to like build institutions that are strong and um, distributed enough to withstand, you know, attacks on them? Um, That's what we've got to be thinking about. Uh, And I just think that there's like so much possibility. Also, I wanted to, I couldn't recall it before in the conversation, but I wanted to mention the folks who are working on like the policy piece and the funding piece, um, especially nationally is this coalition called Rebuild Local News. Um, And then there's also like a media power collective that is working on that too. So like if people are interested in going and learning more about that, um, those are places for them. Plug them both again. Yeah, Rebuild Local News, it's a coalition. Um, And uh, then there's also a media power collective that uh, was started by Free Press in New Jersey based on their success with the Civic Info Bill. Um, So that's also something for people to look up. The question of new models, which is related to the question of how things could improve. I mean, I'm fascinated by it, right? I'm fascinated by it. We still call it the press, at least I do. And it was called the press because the fundamental technology that delivered the uh, that delivered the news, right? The printing press. And and that can cabin my brain, that can cabin my creativity to imagine what it could look like. But there's so many ways it could look. And I'm not saying it needs to be done like Wikipedia, right? But Wikipedia does give us an interesting model of a vastly different way than Encyclopedia Britannica did it. And so I'm st- I still have glimmers, glimmers, not not lots of it, but glimmers of the hopes of you know what technology could provide that we had 15 years ago. There's still some glimmers, and I hope we might that we might be able to capture some of those glimmers. I want to get back to funding before we wrap. And that is with funding comes risk of bias. And, and I don't mean individual bias. I don't mean that a particular person sees a particular thing and makes a particular judgment exactly. I don't think that's exactly how it works. Sometimes it is, right? A friend of mine who is a local TV reporter for a major uh, local TV station told me a story about how uh, somebody found at a grocery store, uh, at a local grocery store, that the they were using... Uh, the wrong weights and measures that in fact they were overweighting meant they were overcharging for uh, for produce, right? It's a big no-no. It's a violation of federal law. And they didn't do the story. And they buried the story because that grocery store was a major uh, advertiser, right? So there's on that extreme, but other but but otherwise it can be much more subtle. It can just be, well, we don't, we don't kind of pick these kind of fights, or we do pick those kind of fights, or we do use this tone, or we don't use this tone, or we do cover these beats because our listenership really likes that kind of stuff. And we don't cover that stuff because our, our listeners don't like that stuff or aren't as interested in that stuff. And so it's one of the reasons why I, I'm interested in sort of diversity, uh, diversity of funding model, right? When I think about universities, we have multiple revenue streams. Well, at least then you have competing biases and maybe then the institution ends up having its mission as sort of the central core of, of how it operates. But I still sort of want to ask how you think about it. I, you could tell me I'm way off base and tell me to jump in a lake, but how, but how do you think about the funding, right? Private funding has its own biases, but by the way, Fundraising can have its own biases. Who's are there going to is the is the MacArthur Foundation going to be the subject of a major scandal-ridden story that's funded by some of those five hundred million dollars? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, first, you, Chris. How do you think about the uh, the interplay between your funding model and potential bias, and how do you try to police it? How do you try to manage for it? 
Well, I mean, we you know we can only do the basic things, which is we would never accept any contribution from anyone who thought they would have any impact on our editorial policy ever at all, and that's just a bright line that we will we would never cross. That's the obvious way. Um, I think that I think a lot of people I think that we're in an era, and I think I don't think I hope, and I don't think we'll have a, a scandal at the MacArthur Foundation. I think the commitment press forward. I haven't even talked about that. I think beyond the money that it's raising, the the, the um, attention that it's bringing to the issue that we need more resources for journalism. And I don't think anybody in that press forward coalition is thinking they're going to be trying to influence content. They're scrambling to address the emergency that in the crisis that Sarah talked about. I think in some ways that's the weird good news about our crisis is that so many people realize we're in it and, and it's a public good and that we need that money. Uh, but when it comes to day-to-day -day operations, I mean, all we can do is make sure, and I don't think our, none of our editors would work here if they thought that I was going to call them up and say, hey, we just got $50,000, you need to do this story this way. That'd be pretty hard to get reliable journalism or reliable journalists, and we would never in a million years do that, and I would never work in a place that would do that. So, uh, And that's in our code of ethics and everything else. So all we can do is be honest and transparent about that and, and do the best job we can. There's you know, there's always been biases and in every in every walk of life and all we can do is try to do the best job we can and trust the readers to trust us and to, and to call us out if they think something's wrong and to, to serve the audience that we serve well you said i mean you said a couple of really important things about institutional standards within the organization right individual standards among the people working there cultural standards right. of a culture of journalism right those are those are sort of right. important and, and specific very helpful answers sarah anything you want to add to that transparency is key. I mean, I think transparency around um, editorial priorities so that your audience knows what to expect from you and would know if something didn't smell right or if a big story is not being covered um, and they expect you to cover it, they should ask questions about why you didn't. Um, so I do think that transparency is really key. And I also do think that, you know, there are people that we don't take money from. Um, and it's not because they would expect perhaps to have influence over our editorial operations, but, you know, locally, um, some of our biggest philanthropic efforts are connected to the beats that we cover. And so we are just not going to take money from the private utility if utilities is our second most important beat um, because of that appearance um, right. that we might not be telling the whole story. Uh, and that's like, that's a hit that we've decided to take. Yep. Um, and if we change our mind, then we would have to really, I wish we won't, but if we did, um, we would have to be really honest with our uh with our readers and our audience yeah. about why we're doing that. Yeah, so I heard you say transparency and also choosiness, right? Being intentional with the kind of resources that brought in, two other helpful principles. If we got a few more minutes, I wanna wrap with just two things. One is sort of the bad news and good news. And by the bad news, I mean, what's a challenge other than money and scale? Right. Other than, well, we'd like to be in more states. We'd like to have more reporters or we'd like to have we'd like to have a gym back. Right. Not just a laptop. Uh, the uh, what's a, what's one of the things that if it doesn't keep you up at night, what's something that you're you're really putting your head on? And then the other question is what you're excited about. But let's stick with that hard question. Uh, you first, Chris, what's a thing that you're really trying to solve for? Either you want input on or you just want a chance to verbally process. Well, I mean, I do think partnerships and working with other organizations is we, we do that a lot now, but I want to do it more. I want to work with more community groups. I want to figure out how to serve our communities better uh, in the capitals and the states that we're operating in. One thing we haven't talked about at all, and it's a whole it's a basis of another show almost 
I am really worried sometimes about the safety of the people who work in journalism. Uh, we have reporters who cover topics that are uh, sensitive, that are threatened. Um, we have, we're in an era, it used to be journalism had this, maybe it wasn't, it was, that era was far from perfect. I completely agree with Sarah, but I felt like there was some societal respect for a journalist doing her or his job. And now I sort of think that that has evaporated uh, and we have journalists threatened um, at all levels of our of, uh, of society. Uh, the raid on Kansas is an obvious example, but there are physical threats to journalists now when they do stories that people don't like. Certain segments of the population. So I'm really I'm really worried about that and how the respect for journalists' job that they're trying to do is is eroded. And I worry about the safety, but also how it uh, impacts uh, our ability to do our jobs. That's one of the things that I, I worry about every day. And not only diminishing the importance and maybe the sanctity, but even the humanity right. Uh, right. Of, of journalists. And and I should have asked for your take on the Marion County record raid. Right, this was not this was not just a random, uh, you know, MAGA hat wear going doing. This was actually, in fact, a police raid, but but uh, that was uh, motivated seizing computer cell phones and reporting materials. And and you mentioned it was one of your outlets that helped cover this and uncover this story. Any sort of reflections or lessons about that? No, just, I mean, I, I was in, when I first heard about this, I was, I'm, and I'm still in shock about it. That's a great example of how far we have come, sort of, that um, that, that, has, uh, that there were local public officials who thought that that was an appropriate use of taxpayer money, an appropriate use of our democratic process to be undemocratic uh, and do you know, to, to uh, assault the First Amendment, literally. Uh, and a, a, as you mentioned, a, a, a woman died, I think, as a result, uh, or certainly that led, the stress of that led to her death. Uh, and I think it, I think it shocked, uh, it shocked the country, it certainly shocked the journalism world. Uh, and we're, I think we're still, I know, I know we are still looking into the ramifications of that and what it means, what it means for the future of journalism, what it means for the relationship between public officials and law enforcement and reporters, which is also a a topic that uh, I, I didn't think we'd be addressing it in this way. Um, so no, I mean, I, I, I'm still startling and still still startled by that, still processing it as our people there are. And I hope journalists everywhere. I mean, it's a it was a, an eye-opening and shocking event. And I hope, I hope that the combination mm -hmm. of that, and, and I'm glad you're willing to comment on it. And I'm hoping the combination of that, and as you mentioned, sort of major philanthropic gifts are are helping to sound the alarm to borrow some of your language, Sarah, about the crisis that we're facing in collecting and sharing and trusting information locally and journalism locally. Sarah, if you want to add comments that you can, otherwise I'll ask you that question, the same question I asked Chris, is there a, is there a particular challenge, uh, again, other than, other than scaling and capacity? that you're thinking about that you'd put out as one of the, one of the biggest things you'd either love help noodling with, or just help, you know, just want to process out loud and shout out to the universe. Yeah, I think that it builds off of what Chris said and what I am worried about is the question of whether or not we are doing enough to repair the harm that has happened in communities and the harm that we're seeing happening with um, abuses of power, because what happened in Kansas is terrible. And it is terrible that the press was targeted, but there are abuses of power happening in our communities that are similar to that 
all of the time and that people really want more attention for. And we need to figure out, I think what I worry about is like, to cover that is not enough. It is important, but it is not enough. And so what else do we have to do to kind of make this society more functional? Um, and again, it's not enough to kind of watch things burn and talk about it. We have to be rebuilding at the same rate <laughs> that we're covering. And that's a, you know, like whether or not we're getting that right, if we're doing that in the right way, um, that's something that I do worry about because ultimately like, that's what I want to see. I'm a reporter because I love my job and I love the skills that I get to use, but I'm a reporter because I think it's a way to improve our communities. And like, that's ultimately what I want to see. Transition that to what's inspiring you now. What are you excited about? What's that? And you can use that as your chance to plug, right? You you can use that as your chance to dream. What's something and start with you, Sarah? What's something that you're, uh, yeah, that's, that's driving you forward? Not only the threat, not only the crisis, not only the fear, not only the danger, but the hope. I really, I mean, we have talked about it, but I think that people who are democracy nerds are going to be really excited about it. I think that programs like documenters are incredibly exciting. I think it is so pure. We have almost 500 Detroit documenters. Um, they are range in age from 16, which is the youngest you can be to be a documenter, to like 81. And these are people who don't just cover meetings, but go and interview city council members. They rode the bus for two days straight to document what the conditions were on the buses and whether or not they really were on time because we don't didn't feel like we could trust the dashboard being put out by the city. Um, they do all kinds of these special projects. And it is so generative. It is so um, such a community building exercise. And it is one of those rare things that injects some real hope into a newsroom. When you're a reporter and you are constantly like worrying about problems that you see and figuring out how to cover really tough stuff and things that are really harming people, it's really wonderful to see a group of people that are together and are saying like, we're gonna help um, build this, city into what we know it can be. Now the question is, how do we get the like 70% of Detroiters that don't even vote into um, building civic infrastructure with us and talk about things that keep me up? That is the question. How do we re-engage people who have just not been engaged, not just in journalism, not just in voting, but in um, their civic community? No, I, I just, uh, all I'll be doing here is piling on, but I, I am personally inspired by the document documenters project, like, like, like the idea and not only, not only for the information, right? Not only because it, oh, there's 500 people got the information and some readers who get it. Set that aside for a moment on the impact it must have on those 500 people, the impact it must have on the people that they know. Right. That, they, that feeling bought into what's happening in the city because they at least know one of their friends, one of their family members, one of their employees, one of their coworkers, one of their bosses, whatever, is one of the people watching that, hey, we're in on this joke. Democracy is a thing we do together, not just something that's done to us or done for us is is a wonderful thing. And then also the impact that it has on the elected official, 
on it has on hopefully the uh, the the bureaucratic official hopefully it has on the 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 runner of a private company who might wield more power than a than an elected official to say oh the community is watching here there is a human being watching here not just somebody that my pr firm already has a relationship with but somebody who you know they might say something so at least i need to be my best self i i want to thank you for it it's it's truly inspiring i know it's a struggle to to run a not a, run a nonprofit of any scale and certainly one that's you know been around for years and trying to and trying to keep it cracking so forgive my pandering but thank you and congratulations for it uh chris to you what's inspiring what's you driving what's giving you hope well sarah gives me hope uh, and the work that she's doing and meeting her and hearing her stories um you know when i uh get discouraged as we all do uh this does sound pandering and i apologize in advance what i do is i go i go read more of the stories i just take a minute and read the stories that our journalists are doing and how hard they're working and see some of the people that are still dedicated to doing that, uh, to meet young uh, interns and fellows um, and uh, young people of color that are getting into journalism and, and learning about how important these things are, um, that there is a whole new generation of people, despite what you hear, who are going into journalism for in whatever form it is, whether they're a documenter or whether they're a young student uh, at Florida A&M realize how important to talk about what's happening in their state, how important that is to the, their communities and their people uh, that they want to inform and, and uh, work with and, and work for. Um, I mean, I think it's the human beings and the human element in all this um, that, that gives me hope. And, and, you know, weirdly, even though we are in a crisis, it, journalism is in a crisis, democracy is in a crisis, but the fact that I do think there's some awakening happening, uh, I think, it, and I think it will happen fast enough that people are coming to understand these things that we've been talking about for the last hour, that it's a public good, that there are all these stories to tell, that there are people who want to be engaged, there are people who want to make a difference, that we deserve and demand to know what people are doing allegedly on our behalf in the halls of power at city councils and state legislatures and Congress and everywhere else. I do think that there is still a good fundamental core of America uh, and Americans and people who live here who want to improve things. And journalism is a really important tool. And so I'm just personally happy to be involved in that in any way. Uh, and I'm thrilled to know that Sarah is involved in, in, in her way and that, um, you know, that there's a bright future there. It's just, it's just not going to be easy, but there's, it's a struggle. But I do think there's a, there, you know, we're all pushing for the same thing. Chris Fitzsimon, president and publisher of the National States Newsroom Consortium. Sarah Alvarez, founder and editor-in-chief of the Detroit-based Outlier Media. Thank you, both of you. And thanks for being democracy nerds. <laughs> thanks for having me. Thank you. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy